Hi, my name is Jay, and I'd like to welcome you guys to another episode of Standardize, where we investigate how standards affect everyone's lives. This episode features a conversation between Chip Eskridge, the chairperson of the ASME B31.3, to name a few, and Rob McGregor, who specializes in Canadian registration number and pressure equipment designs, and both are in attendance of the ASME B31.3 committee meetings. Of course, the discussions are opinions of the two speakers and not authoritative representations of the ASME B31.3 committee. Let's have a listen. We create a standardized to basically teach people around the world what standards are about and uh, how they affect society. And we've been talking to different experts in the fields of different standards to get the good global picture of what's going on in the world. And then we hope that this can contribute to higher education and and you know, let engineers know what they're getting into when they when they're in the undergrad. I, yeah, when I was a when I was a an undergrad student, I was actually a, the representative for the ASME at the school. Okay. Yeah, and I got exposure to a lot of different things that we brought to the school, and I just thought this would be a, a modern way of doing it because uh, we had to have like public talks, and it was really cumbersome. So. Um, so I know that you have a, a strong background in, uh, in pressure retaining equipment and, and systems, and you uh, are the chairperson of the ASME B31.3 committee, but, but I know there's a lot more to you, and so, so uh, could you tell us a little bit about your, yourself and your background? Well, sure. So yes, I am a degreed engineer, uh, and, and uh, I do have an advanced degree, which a uh, master's in science. So. I'm also, when you get out in a practice of engineering, you have, um, you can advance in the design world as a licensed professional engineer. I think uh, in Canada they might call it a, a PN and, uh, or a PNG. So I am licensed in uh, 12 of the 50 states to practice engineering and I have an unusual background in that uh, most engineers are licensed in one area of expertise, like maybe a structural engineer or maybe a mechanical engineer. So I've actually been licensed in four disciplines of, of, of study, which is uh, mechanical engineering, metallurgical engineering, chemical engineering, which is uh, a lot of my academic background, and environmental engineering. But I've been out in industry for, for 30 plus years. So uh, I have a, a broad base of, of knowledge, and, uh, as well as I think a, a deep uh, depth of knowledge. We all have different personalities. Uh, if you look at uh, like the Meyer-Briggs system, there tends to be four different personalities. There's expressives, there's analyticals, there's amiables, and there's drivers. So, so what I find in, in, in this committee, or at least my personality, is uh, I'm an analytical driver. Uh, and what I would explain that is, uh, you know, if I was a driver driver, that would be get it done, whether it's right or wrong. Let's just get it done. And an analytical driver is one that understands the need to complete a project, but we better do it the right way. And it doesn't have to necessarily be perfect. Uh, there's a saying, don't let perfection be the hostage of good. So sometimes you can't get it perfect, but uh, you know, my goal is to have something that's, that's good, better than what it was, but uh, and you have to do it in a, in a reasonable amount of time. So that's what an anal analytical driver personality is. How did you become the chairperson of uh, 
B31.3. So, so B31.3 is an ANSI-approved document, which means it's an open, open meeting to the public. Anybody can come. Uh, this meeting, probably 20% of our attendees are first-time attendees, visitors. And uh, I did the same uh, 20 years ago. I'd uh, had an interest to to get more involved with uh, uh, standards and codes and found out the, 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 the first meeting where it was held. So you have to take a little bit of initiative to, uh, to, uh, to find these meetings. But I showed up as a visitor and uh, uh, there is a process to get uh, involved and, and get, uh, get on the committee. That's uh, usually a recommendation at first, but then as you advance to uh, maybe a, a chairperson or a vice chairperson, uh, that's usually a, well, that is a ballot process. And uh, so of the 80 members, uh, every three years, they uh, hold a, uh, an election, like a general election where everybody casts a vote. Uh, the, how you cast your vote is held secret to ASME so that uh, you never know who votes for who. But so through the ballot process, I was elected uh, first chair, uh, vice chair. And after a three-year term, uh, I ran for chair, became the chairman of B ASME B31-3. So, so what kind of roles uh, on a day-to-day -day basis do you play at B31-3? And what are the responsibilities you have? Well, all of our attendees at this meeting, and there's 80 of us at this, this meeting, all but one are volunteers. So ASME sends a staff secretary who's a paid position and the other 79 uh, are all volunteers. So so we don't do this full time. It's uh, the volunteers are made up of uh, interest across uh, different uh, sectors of, of industry. We have designers, we have manufacturers, we have insurance agencies all coming to this meeting so we all have a regular job uh, but between our meetings we seen how this is a volunteer led organization uh, or at least the committee is made up of volunteers we we work on it on our own time and then as we meet we we present our uh, what we've worked on and you know to, what we think is needed to advance the code what kind of time do you spend on this as a volunteer like any 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 kind of organization where someone might volunteer their time you get people that volunteer a lot of their time and some that maybe only volunteer a little bit of their time um, you know it is what you what you put into it I uh, I would say since our meetings are six months apart that's a 26 weeks I would say every week I'm doing something uh, even if it's just calling an individual and asking them, do they need any help on something? I would say the typical code member in those 26 weeks might spend four weeks working on, on what's been assigned to them. But so at my level, I, I do probably make, well, I do make weekly phone calls uh, just to see how uh, work is progressing. And what drives you to, to do all this? Well, I think it's, I guess, what drives anybody. You have to have a, a passion for what you do. Uh, the more passion you have in something, the more that it drives you. Uh, there's a saying, if you uh, enjoy what you do, you never work another day of your life. So, so I think people that come to this meeting 
it is a group of people that uh, enjoy what they do. And that in itself will drive you. What kind of standard is this B31.3 and how does this standard affect business and society in your opinion? So, so in the ASME world, our committee comes under what's called pressure technology codes and standards. So, so this is actually a code and it differentiates itself a little bit from a standard. Uh, standards go back in this country all the way back to around 1880 when they had a large fire in Baltimore and uh, seven different fire departments showed up and they found out that none of the hose threads connected to each other. So that led to the need for national standards to be established. So there are many, many, many standards out there. Uh, threads are, are, are one. So code is a collection of many standards and then how do you use those standards to have a useful product. And being a code, many jurisdictions, organizations recognize it as a useful uh, document to apply all these standards and then they'll legislate it as in law as follow B31.3 for your pressure piping systems. So in the 31.3 we we have a list of, of standards that probably is over 100 long. We springboard off those standards to, to make a, a piping system. What is the process of creating these standards? So to create a standard uh, we've had actually people anywhere from outside industry come in and say they see a, uh, a void out there for for a certain standard and right now we're looking at some new standards so once it's been say nominated at our committee to create a new standard it has to go through a formal process say up the chain all the way to the board of pressure technology codes and standards to say yes that's a useful standard the idea is uh, you can make a standard on, on many things that uh, and some of them, I think the process determines whether that's a useful strand standard uh, for, for being in a safety code. I've talked about that with many people on the committee and they, they, they find a lot of people in a leadership role around technology are analytical drivers. You just described the process of creating the standards. What's the basis of most of the changes to the B31.3 standard? Okay, and, and there's nothing formalized in this, but I know I, as the chairman of a committee of, of, of 80 people, I, I use my own criteria to decide is this a useful change or is this a, maybe an unnecessary change? Well, first of all, uh, if we've identified a safety concern, I can think of a couple of changes in the code we made recently, there was, which led to fatalities. Uh, uh, one was a power plant out in California in the 90s where they found part of our design rules at a very, very high temperature had maybe something we overlooked, what's called creep. And so, so we added, uh, we modified the formula uh, that, that's used to determine wall thickness. And that, uh, that's some of the feedback that we got, of course. So it's a, it was a safety concern that we've, we've since fixed 30 years ago. Another thing is industry practice. If the code, and I'll say industry practice, let's say, uh, if the code is, um, users of the code are not following the code because they think it's, 
uh, not a safety concern, then, then you know, maybe technology's moved on past that. Uh, then we'll we'll maybe take something out of the code that we feel like is uh, obsolete now. Another reason we changed the code is technology. X-rays, uh, X-ray and didn't wasn't around a uh, hundred years ago when the first codes came out. So we added uh, radiography requirements that led to ultrasonics. A lot of people go to the doctor and maybe have an ultrasonic test. That wasn't in the code 50 years ago, so we started adding that. So technology will drive changes to the code. Um, we also have uh, improved readability. Uh, there is a mechanism to, for the industry to ask uh, interpretation requests. They'll read the code, and like a lot of statutory type documents, you don't quite understand what they're, the purpose of that. So we'll get a question in from industry that asks about a particular paragraph. Usually one question like that that we formally address doesn't drive to a change, but if we start seeing a second or third on the same paragraph, that tells us the readability of that paragraph is confusing to industry. We'll, we'll open up an item to improve the readability of something. So there's, there's no long list of criteria, but myself, I, I kind of use this in, internal five or six to try to screen out uh, when to add something to our working list or how, how important it might be. There's a lot of responsibility in the code. Do you ever have differences of opinion of what the, the code should be and how, you res how do you resolve those differences? Oh yes, um, you know, this, is a, uh, this is a group of, of say around 80 individuals and they're all experts in their own uh, company maybe or in their field. So when you get uh, that many people together, uh, probably no different than a government body. Everybody has an opinion on how something should be written. Like most governing bodies, some might use a majority rules, uh, but in uh, ASME, at this committee, we use a two-thirds consensus approval. So we'll debate it. We do have Robert's rules. We'll, we'll open things up for debate. We'll ask for motions. We'll ask for seconds, and once the debate is over, we'll have uh, some kind of voting system, and if two-thirds says it should go this way, then that's, that's the way the code is written. So you still might have a third of the members disagree with it, but that's, uh, that's we find, is a workable system. The balloting system, is that a two-thirds uh, rule as well? The it is. Um, there's some criteria that will use a majority, but uh, the language in the code, when you get to passing anything that you're trying to get a group to, to approve, you, there's something called consensus opinion. And, and consensus is, is not quantified as what percentage, so it could be 51%, it could be 90%. Of course, 90% is a pretty tall order to try to get that many people to agree. So the consensus is that two-thirds is a good number to say that uh, a group of industry experts believe that this is how it should be written. So the voting process is somebody proposes a change it goes through this committee by two-thirds, 
it goes to the next level, which is the B31 piping committee. That oversees more than just chemical piping. It oversees power piping, pipeline. So that group is made up of a broader group of individuals, but that, that's a two-thirds process. And then it goes on to the board for actually unanimous at that point. The board is just making sure we follow policy. They're not adding technical uh, justification, but they want to make sure that the ANSI process worked and that the board, they're just making sure any negatives were properly addressed uh, and that uh, we did follow policy. And at the board level, it does take unanimous approval of 30 board members to say, okay, let's print this into the next code. Wow, that's incredible. You know how that consensus process evolved in the, in the ASME? Because I don't see it in many other places. You know, uh, I don't know if uh, the history of, of, of the percentage, because, uh, you know, like in the U.S. government, uh, you only have to pass the House by 51%. And in the Senate, though, you have to pass it by 60%. So I think each parliamentary body determines what they feel would be a, a, a criteria to, to approve it. And, uh, um, yeah, and so... Yeah, I read once that there was some kind of um, uh, uh, coercion that went on at the beginning of the antitrust law. Yeah, there was an, in, uh, in the 80s, there was a... Um, that has to not do with consensus, but uh, what we call a balance of interest. So in the 80s, uh, uh, multiple employees from one manufacturing company got on the committee and they were able to put through some changes that only their company could make this component. And so uh, there was a lawsuit filed by manufacturers in that area that said that's an antitrust trade because you know, they have a patent on that. So they actually got to the code committee and was able to pass it without us knowing so then uh, that, le that led to a policy change that says, okay, if you work for uh, a manufacturer, you only get one person on the code. That keeps them from uh, piling on the approvals. How do you ensure the right stratification of experts in different fields for this code? So there's a, uh, there's a policy that lists about 20 different industries like f uh, that uh, you could be coming from. So. So one industry is if you're a design firm, one industry is if you're a, for a government. So one industry is if you're an insurance agency, another one if you're a, a fabricator. Um, one industry is if you're a manufacturer, and that's, that led to the, so, so there's a preset of, of these uh, interest categories. Uh, it's written in ASME policy, and then we, we go by an operating guide that takes that 20 and says, well, the following 12 categories are useful for this code. Because not every, not, every, uh, not every standard and code maybe has a, uh, an insurance agency that's even important. Uh, they're involved with it. Um, I'm sure there's a uh, standard out there for making plastic bottles. And... Uh, uh, insurance company might not be as involved, but the government would be involved with, you know, how do you make that plastic bottle, so. So what role does the American Society of Mechanical Engineers play in all of this? Okay, so this goes back 
to pre-1900, I think the American Society of Mechanical Engineers formed somewhere around 1880. Uh, it probably had a big part to do with the first standard on threads. So they saw the need for standards to be developed, and threads was just one of many um, whole standards. There's so, so many different standards they started developing. So the ASME Society was formed in, I think, 1884. Um, it went along for about 15 years and found out, uh, again, manufacturers were making components to a, a standard, but how those components are assembled into a, a working system, uh, they found that uh, that's where uh, there was a need to develop codes. So, so somewhere in 1916, actually 1914, American Society of Mechanical Engineers started forming code committees on how do you use these standards into a usable system. So ASME uh, has evolved since 1880, and uh, they've, uh, you know, now there's uh, nuclear codes. The elevators have an ASME code. Every year, uh, a couple times a year, the different states get together and uh, meet on an elevator code. So there are many codes out there, and uh, ASME has played that role as being the uh, recognized body to go to, to uh, uh, for writing mechanical codes. Right, good, that's very good. Well, thank you so much for, for doing this interview. It's yeah. been very informative and, yeah. and helpful.